0: We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. All right, good evening. Uh, So, my name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and uh, as Austin said, I believe that. Halloween is a very Christian holiday, and uh, partly because um, it's All Hallows Eve, that's what Halloween comes from, it's the uh, eve of All Saints Day, and on the eve of All Saints Day, they mock the demons and uh, make fun of the devil as a way of saying that he has been defeated by Christ, so um, that's why people dress up in costumes, to make fun of evil spirits. And then also, in Halloween, um, unlike, say, Christmas or Thanksgiving, people are not just in their homes with the the doors closed, uh, just taking care of themselves and their family. They're actually the opposite. They're either outside walking around in a neighborhood uh, or they're giving stuff to people who are coming up to their doorsteps. And no other time in the year could you ever come up to someone's doorstep and ask for anything uh, except for Halloween. And people are out in different neighborhoods from all different walks of life, uh, different ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, They're all mixed together. You're buying stuff to give people. um, You're giving it away, strangers. um, There's there's a ton of social capital built up by Halloween. So these are the reasons I love Halloween, and I hope that a lot of you go and trick-or-treat after this. Um, So that's my apologetic for Halloween. We're looking at um, the patriarchs, which are the Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And these these are the folks that God chose, these families, he chose them to be... The way that he would come into the world and uh, and attack what is evil. The world was taken over by this evil empire uh, by the principalities and powers ruled by the dark lord himself. And so, when the world got taken over by the empire, uh, God said, "I'm going to invade that world through these um, these patriarchs and their family, and they're going to create this nation, Israel, that will bless the whole world through this Messiah that will come through Israel." Now, in studying the origins of Israel, and Israel by the name is Israel by the way is the name of Jacob. When Jacob is redeemed, God calls him Israel. And so the 12 sons of Jacob are these folks we see in this story right here, which is like a family systems therapist nightmare. If you brought, these, if you brought this family into your office uh, as a counselor, this would, this would be um, almost impossible. Because these brothers uh, and Jacob himself and his, uh, his wives um, are just a complete mess. And one of the things that I've been really impressed by in rereading these stories is just how completely um, messed up the people in the Bible are. These are the heroes of the Bible. These are the people that God uses to redeem the world. And we see, that the first point I want to look at in this, in this passage, the first thing I want to talk about is just how self-destructive and sick uh, these, these brothers are, including Joseph and the dad, the whole group. So that's the first point, um, which is actually good news. It's really good news because... Uh, we, it, we deep down, we all know uh, there's something wrong with us. And the Bible just says, yeah, it's true, but it's not just you, it's everyone. So that's the first point. Uh, the second point is that in the middle of all this sin and all this self-destruction and all this jealousy and murderous rage and anger, uh, God is in control and he is working through all the sin to bring about redemption. Even these absolutely terrible things that happen, God is using all of this. It's not random. It's not accidental. It's not mistakes. They're not flukes. Doesn't, it, you don't get any comfort from thinking that. Um, that, that this stuff that is meaningless. It's, it's not. None of it is. God is working through all of it. So uh, those are the two points. All of sin and then God works through all the sin. So first of all, uh, in verse 3, it says Israel loved Joseph more than any other son. That's, again, that's Jacob, renamed as Israel. And uh, if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob himself, had a brother named Esau, who was the favorite son of his father Isaac. And so now you come to this and you say, how in the world could this child, who knew how terrible it was to play favorites, have a favorite? You know, his youngest, the child of his old age, his youngest child, the child of his favorite wife, Rachel, is this Joseph. And Jacob knew so well the pain of not being the favorite, that it's shocking to me that he would actually make up for that childhood wound by making Joseph his favorite. And it wasn't a subtle thing either. Uh, If you look at verse 3, it says he made him a robe of many colors. You might have heard of Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat. It's a play, a musical. Um, It wasn't really Technicolor. It wasn't a dream coat. This coat was actually the inheritance cloak. So whenever a family would um, pass down the inheritance they would pass it through this heirloom that was this incredibly embroidered, uh, like beautiful, priceless cloak. And um, that's what this is in verse 3. This is that cloak. Now this, this cloak is obviously supposed to go to Reuben, the firstborn, because the firstborn inherited everything. But instead, uh, Jacob, who also stole the inheritance, remember that? He stole the inheritance from his older brother, now he is giving the inheritance to the youngest son, the second youngest son, Joseph. And he's completely bypassing Reuben. So again, the same thing that happened to him. This happens in a lot of families. The things that happen to you as a child, you often do back to your own children. So um, perhaps the worst of all these things is in verse 14. Um, you see that uh, Jacob makes Joseph the supervisor of his brother's. So imagine you have a family, and you take the youngest child of a large family, and you say, "You need to be the boss of your siblings." That's a terrible setup for that child. But he says to Joseph, "Go see how your brothers are doing with my flock, and bring me word." So apparently, um, this is always happening—that Joseph is being sent out with his dream, you know, his, his coat on. He's 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 sent out to check on the brothers. And of course, none of this favoritism is helping Joseph at all. So pretending that your child is perfect and innocent never helps, trust me, that does not help at all. Um, Joseph is just like lapping this stuff up, right? As any child would, he's loving it, he's like, bring it on. But in the meantime, it's poisoning him and it's poisoning his brothers. And he spends the rest of his life healing from being the favorite child. And if some of you were the favorite child and you knew it, some of you were told that you were the favorite child, and that is not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. And you see that in verse 2 where Joseph is bringing a bad report to his father. So he's tattletaling. He's telling on his brothers. He's a snitch. He's a teacher's pet. And that does not, that does not help him at all uh, to, be a, to be like that. This is, what his, this is what his dad is putting on him. And then the way he comes to his brothers. I mean, these dreams that he dreams, they're from God. We're going to find that out later. He is... He is gifted with the ability to interpret dreams. so these are dreams that are from God, but Joseph did not have to go to his brothers and like announce it. Um, the word um, "behold" is used several times and behold is like, look at me. <clears throat> that's a word used all over the Bible. look And so multiple times when he comes to his brothers. You know, wearing his expensive coat. And, like, I imagine him in, like, really soft fabric shoes, like Tom's or something like that. And his brothers have boots on out there working the sheep. And Joseph comes up with his coat on and his soft shoes. Behold, hear this dream that I have dreamed. And you can imagine them just immediately grumbling. Uh, Verse 7, behold, we were binding sheep, uh, sheaves, which are, like, um, when you harvest, the sheaves are the wheat stalks that you put together and bind. They're probably thinking, well, you've never bound anything in your life. You know, you're the spoiled little child wearing that coat. But he says, Behold, we were binding sheaves, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around my sheaf and bowed down to my sheaf. And I cannot imagine what he was thinking their reaction would be, but it was not a good one. Um, It says that they could not speak a kind word to him. They hated him all the more for these dreams. And if that's not bad enough, he's so clueless that he does it again. And this time he involves his parents. Behold, verse 9, I have dreamed another dream. I'm sure you want to hear it. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And this time even his starstruck dad, you know, even Jacob rebukes him now. And so the the dad is messed up. Joseph's messed up. The brothers are murderous. They're hateful. This constant verbal abuse of Joseph. They could not speak peacefully to him in verse 4. That's a Hebrew understatement which means they swore at him, they laughed at him behind his back, he was the butt of all their jokes, which just increased his isolation, increased his alienation. It's so bad that they have this murderous rage, they're just ready to kill him. And so they strip him of his robe, they throw him in a pit. And then not only that, you see the callousness of their hearts in verse 25. It says, they sat down to eat. And my friends kind of compared it to Hannibal Lecter, just how sick, like a sociopath, That you would just throw your brother into a pit, and you would sit down and have a a meal. You would, like, eat together. Then they sat down and eat. And if you look at the way they report the death to Jacob in verse 32, it's so cold. It's so remorseless and chilling. It says, uh, they came to Jacob, and they said, this is what we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. You know, not our brother, uh, your son. Please identify this. We found this. And you see how much hatred and anger there is in their hearts, just by that one little comment. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are sitting around, and they're saying, who should we we use to redeem the world? Oh, I know, we'll choose that family. We'll choose this absolutely messed up family to be the ones that save the world. Not only does God use these sinful people, he highlights in the story. He actually goes out of his way in the story to say, I want you to, to be able to detect... I want you to be able to see how hateful and jealous and how much resentment and bitterness and how much violence and all these things are involved with my people. My people are messed up people. And the reason that God does this is because it magnifies his own grace. The depths of his love, the depths of his mercy. As, uh, as John Bourgeois says, some of you know John Bourgeois, the RUF pastor Wake Forest. He says, redemption is better than perfection. And this is highlighting that fact. That in, in Christianity, it's, we're not a bunch of nice people. We're not, we're not just people who are supposed to be nice our whole life. We are people who are redeemed from something terrible. And not just when you were little, but throughout your life, you realize that redemption just keeps going on and on and on, like thunder that just rumbles on and on and on. And God makes it clear it's not on you. It's not about you. It's not your responsibility. I'm the one in charge of this. I'm doing this work. I'm redeeming your life. So he picks the least healthy family and the most obnoxious son so that he would receive the most glory from that. Because God is so good. And the, the Bible is the only book. And this makes me trust the Bible. If you doubt the Bible, I get that. It's full of a lot of difficult stories. A lot of strange stories. The flood is weird, the Tower of Babel's weird, the Garden of Eden's weird, a lot of stuff that's really strange. But listen to this, the, the Bible's the only book where the heroes of the story are the bad guys. Okay, who would write a book, a religious textbook, where the people who are supposed to be the heroes in that book, whether it's the patriarchs or the kings or the disciples or the churches that Paul writes to, they're all messed up. They're, it, they're, their sins are highlighted by God. So imagine like writing a history of the USA and you're just concentrating on the sins of the people who were involved in the founding of this country. You wouldn't do that. Nobody does that. The, the people who write history are the winners and they make the history look good for them, but not the Bible. Because in the Bible, God is the only hero and he's writing about these people that he is saving and redeeming. And so everyone, there, there are no heroes. They're, they're, we're all villains. Um, and, and it's so countercultural especially in today's world. Imagine CNN showing all the worst parts of Republicans. Actually, they do that. Imagine CNN showing all the worst parts of Democrats. Imagine Fox News showing all the worst parts of Republicans. Even for one day, even for one day, if they did that, that would be so disorienting to people because we have to say that those people are awful and show all of their sins and we're good, we're the good guys, and the Bible just scrambles all of that and says no. No. In the Bible, if you're formed by the narratives of the Bible, if you are personally formed by the kingdom of God, then you know that you're called to be honest about your life. That we we do not have to be afraid of the dark as people of the kingdom. That we can be brutally honest. In fact, one one person said um, that it is positively harmful to give people the impression that you're a good person that if you're a Christian and you're going around giving people the impression that you're a good person, you're doing harm to them because you're making them believe that they're not as good as you. And that's a lie. That's a lie. And so part of the trick of being part of the kingdom is to be honest about the messiness of your life, to be vulnerable, to be open. It's deeply healing. I had to tell my life story recently in a small group and my friend told me, the more honest you are, Ben, about the darkness of your life, the more the light of Christ will shine when you tell that story. And it's true. And I'm not just talking about telling your story in a small group. I'm talking about telling a friend of yours maybe he's not a believer. And when you, when you, tell, when you talk to a non-believer, highlight the fact that you are a messed up person. That will help them. That will not push them away from the kingdom. You know, sometimes Christians say, I wanna have a good witness. I wanna have a good witness to tell my friends. Your good witness is to say that God is glorious, And I need his grace every day. That's the witness. So that's the first point, that all have sinned. And we can narrate our failures because it's safe to do so in the kingdom. Number two, that even in the middle of that, God works out everything somehow for good. So this story centers on this fateful day of the murder, or the murder of what would have been the murder of Joseph. And Joseph, as we saw, was sent by Jacob to check up on the brothers to supervise the brothers, and they're supposed to be near Shechem. So imagine this is like um, maybe a mile or two miles away from home. That's where the sheep are kept. That's where Jacob has all his flocks. That's where the 11 brothers take care of the sheep. But now Joseph goes to Shechem, and they just happened to have moved the sheep that day to Dothan, which uh, has more wells in it. There's a lot of wells there. So they probably didn't find enough water in Shechem, So they went to Dothan, which is like maybe five miles farther away. And if you, if you type in uh, Dothan in Google, you find out there's a lot of wells there. And there's a lot of empty wells. There's a lot of dry wells. So there's actually a well they think is the well where Joseph fell into. It's, uh, it's a little place. They've, they've, uh, they take tourists in Dothan and they say, this is Joseph's well. Anyway, uh, Joseph can't find them because he goes to Shechem. Where are the brothers? And this is a very interesting verse, verse 15. And I think the author is highlighting the fact that none of this is random. It says in verse 15, a man found Joseph wandering in the field. So Joseph's kind of looking around, Shechem, where are the sheep? Where are my brothers? Uh, What am I going to tell my dad that they've done wrong this time? And they're not there. So he's wandering around this field, and this total stranger walks by. And he's like, are you looking for the 11 guys with the sheep? And Joseph's like, actually, yes, how did you know? And the guy says, I have no idea, but I happened to overhear them uh, talking about Dothan. Maybe you should check out Dothan. And the point is that in this this, moment, this intersection of Joseph and this stranger who happened to see the brothers and now sends them to Dothan, that should not have happened. That was a random event. Why did Moses include that? Wandering the fields. As a way of saying, even these seemingly accidental details are not accidental. Even these negative details. When the, when the brothers see Joseph coming uh, to them in Dothan, they think, they think to themselves, okay, there are all these dried up wells, perfect place. We've been wanting to kill him for a long time. He's way away from home now. We can't get in trouble. We can do the whole goat trick thing about the blood. It's the perfect setup. God has sent him right into this perfect setup. So verse 19, they say, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. It's a setup. And the more, the more I thought about this, it was really hard for me to internalize this. And maybe you're, maybe you're connecting the dots right now in your life and you're thinking, how is it that God does these things? Um, like, if only I had not turned down that street, or if I had only not gone to that party, then it wouldn't have happened. Or if only I hadn't run into this person. Or if only I hadn't been on this team. You know, if I hadn't made the basketball team. Or if I hadn't made the basketball team. Or what if I had uh, just not met this person ever. And on and on, all these ways, it's, it's kind of disturbing. The dark side of God's providence when he brings into our lives these things, these calamities. And all of these thousands of ways these tragedies could have been avoided. And we just have to name that. The Bible does name that. It doesn't act like uh, we don't want to talk about that, like let's not go there. It it actually names that right here. And I'll tell you from experience, because I was an atheist who believed everything was random and meaningless, and it does not help. It does not help you to say, oh, it's all an accident. This stuff happens for no reason at all. Now, I'm not saying we can ever know the reason, because we can't. I'm not saying we can know the reason why, but I am saying that it does not help to say it's random. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. It says the same providence that put Joseph in that pit is the same providence that gets him out of that pit. And that that it is so helpful and healing uh, to know that none of these things happen by accident. Um, So first of all, Reuben, for whatever reason, the oldest brother, who has every reason to hate Joseph, right? he's the one who got the inheritance taken away. And for some reason, Reuben decides... Uh, verse 21, let's not take his life. So that's surprising. Where'd that come from? That's a random. And then Judah, second oldest, he says, let's not kill him. Let's make money off of him. So he reinforces Reuben's narrative and gets the other brothers. Because the other brothers probably said, oh, I don't, Reuben, you're stupid. No, we're not going to do that. But now that, that Judah comes along and says in verse 26, what profit is it if we kill our brother? Let's make money off of him. Then the other brothers are like, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. And so between Reuben and Judah, Joseph's life is being saved now. And then, not only that, that that, that very moment, it says these um, these spice traders came along, and it's a very famous trade route from uh, East Asia down through Palestine into Africa. Very, this is called the the, the spice route, and this is right and this is right in the middle of that spice road. This is very realistic. So these spice traders are coming by right when they're saying, maybe we can make some money off our brother, and these perfect customers come by. It says in verse 28, uh, these traders passed by. They drew Joseph up. They lifted him up out of the pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And so the same providence that gets Joseph into the pit gets him out of the pit. And not only out of the pit, but what happens in Egypt? If you know the rest of the story, why does God send him to Egypt? Because in Egypt, he gets embroiled in power politics. It says in verse 36, he was sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. A very powerful man who knew the Pharaoh personally. So Joseph is immediately wrapped up in the power politics of Egypt. Which is very important because eventually he becomes the vice president of Egypt. And when um, this massive famine comes across the entire Middle East... It is Joseph uh, as the vice president of Egypt who makes the wise decision to store all this grain during the famine so that uh, when the whole world is starving, they come to Egypt and Israel comes to Egypt and they are saved by Joseph's wisdom of saving all that grain. So he becomes the vice president to rescue Israel from starvation, to bring forth the Messiah who would rescue the whole world. So you see there that although God has not mentioned this chapter, He's not mentioned one time in this chapter, but every single detail shows his fingerprints are all over it. The, the coat, the dreams, the stranger, the pits, the Midianites, all of these things that God is there watching over everything. He's redeeming even the worst things that have ever happened to us. Uh, the favoritism, the awful favoritism, the coat, the arrogance of Joseph, the jealousy of the brothers. God is using these details to redeem all of these terrible things in our lives. In ways, again, we cannot possibly understand. But he's doing it. And he's seeing everything that's happening to you. And there's verbal abuse in this story. There's violence in the story. There's abandonment in the story. There's exile in the story. And whatever you're going through, whatever part of those things you're going through, God says, I see those things. And I'm watching those things. And I'm not unaware. I'm not aloof. I'm very involved. I'm very engaged. I'm right there with you. In fact, God not only knows it from the outside, he knows it from the inside. And this is what makes Christianity so remarkable, is that God experienced these things as a human. Uh, there's, a famous, uh, there's a famous essay in philosophy called, What It's Like for a Bat to be a Bat. And this guy distinguishes from knowing what, what it's like to be a bat. Okay, you, you have knowing what it's like to be a bat, and then you have what it's like for a bat to be a bat. I don't know if that makes any sense, but God knows what it's like for a human to be a human. He doesn't just know what it's like to be human, he knows like what it means to get inside of the human experience and experience these things that seem like random evil. The betrayal of his best friend Judas, the cowardice of Peter, uh, the cruelty of his people. God knew from the inside what it felt like to be Joseph, what it felt like to be you. And not one ounce of the pain of the whips or the crown or the nails or the spear, not one single ounce of all that pain is wasted in the crucifixion. And so we we don't have to be afraid of the darkness in the kingdom of God because we know that God is using all of these things. And he's bringing healing and redemption and transformation